Good Morning Capshaw. I'm Jessica, and this is your weekly In the Know. If you are a guest with us in person or online today, we want to thank you for joining us this morning. If you are seeking prayer, information about the church, or joining us for the first time, please scan the QR code in the seat back in front of you for our virtual connect card. For those of you joining us online, you can visit capshaw.org slash connect card. Now, let's find out what's going on around campus. Are you ready to take the next step and demonstrate your faith through Believer's Baptism? If so, please contact Pastor Brandon at brandon.bentley at capshaw.org. Baptism Sunday will take place on May the 2nd at the 1045 a.m. worship service. Capshaw is preparing for our parent-child dedication service on Sunday, April the 25th. This is such an exciting day for our church family as we commit to partner with parents seeking to point their children to Jesus. If you are interested, please email Roberta Fox at roberta.fox at capshaw.org for more information. Several times during the year, Capshaw hosts special events and we are in need of paid childcare workers. If you are 16 years of age or older and would like to serve in this ministry, please contact Roberta Fox at roberta.fox at capshaw.org. Before we leave, here is a quick reminder. You can get general information, find out about upcoming events, as well as give by scanning the QR code in the seat back in front of you or by visiting us at capshaw.org. As always, if you have any questions, you can email us at info at capshaw.org. I hope you all have a great week. Now let's get ready to worship. Good morning, Capshaw. How are you this morning? Let's all stand for the reading of God's word from Nehemiah 9. It says, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their host, the earth and all that is on it, the sea and all that is in them. And you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. Praise the
riches of kindness he lavished on us. His blood was a payment, his life was the cost. We stood neath the debt we could never Uh, welcome to Capshaw. My name is Adam. I'm one of the pastors here uh, and uh, want to take this time to welcome you. If this is your first time here gathering with us or maybe it's, maybe it's one of your first times, maybe it's not the first time, uh, but you've never really connected with us, we would love to do just that. Um, anytime throughout the worship service, you can see in the seat back in front of you, there is a connect card with a QR code. You can take your phone uh, and scan it, and you can uh, interact with a number of different things at Capshaw, one of which is uh, what we call a digital connect card. And if there are questions you maybe have about small groups, maybe you have about baptism, or even what it means to follow Christ, uh, whatever that may be, we would love to connect with you. Uh, and, and so you'll just fill out a little bit of information, let us know, and then we'll reach out to you. Um, by way of email or phone call or some, some, some form of communication. We'll reach out to you. Uh, if also, if there's a thing that, anything that we can be praying for, uh, you can also let us know there. And that's for everybody. Because, uh, again, we, we, we do see the value. We, we highly value um, the, the need to take prayers as pastors, as elders, uh, to take your prayers before the Lord. Uh, and so we do that each and every week. And so uh, feel free to do that. Uh, anytime throughout the worship service, uh, or even if you're watching online, I guess for that matter, uh, you can go to the under the about section and, and connect with us there in the same in the same way. Um, one other thing, as we uh, I guess before we continue on in the worship service, one thing that you'll be hearing about in coming days is this uh, discipleship pathway where we unveil like a new vision and mission for for Capshaw. Um, and then obviously the strategy of what it looks like to make disciples. And so we're going to do a number of those things over the coming weeks, but one thing that's uh, been very clear in our discussions among the elders about this particular topic is our real need for, 
for the, for the Holy Spirit to guide us. Uh, and, and we realize we can plan, we can map out a clear pathway, we can do a number of things, a number of things in terms of planning, but if the Lord does not move, everything we do is in vain. And, uh, and so we want to uh, ask the Lord for help there. And so I'm going to pray for us this morning uh, just for, uh, for, for a number of things, primarily centering on that, that God would revive us as a church uh, in a number of areas. And so uh, let's pray this morning. Uh, gracious God, we love you. And we thank you, Father, for the kindness that you have shown us in Christ uh, God, just even recognizing um, our real need for a Savior and seeing your provision that you brought uh, through your Son to us um, in his life and death and resurrection. Uh, God, all of this highlights and accentuates our real need uh, and desperate need for, for you and for you to, to, to move in our place. Because we realize that on our own, we can't do it. We can't revive our hearts. We can't uh, even grow in maturity on our own. We can't do anything on our own apart from your, your grace. And so, Father, we need it. We need your help. We need your spirit to guide us. And so, God, I pray this morning, Father, just one, beginning by confessing. Um, confessing that all too often uh, we, we find ourselves in a place where we are self-reliant. Uh, we are focusing on ourselves, and we are planning everything out, and we give little regard to, uh, to, to our real need and help from you. So, Father, we confess that to you, uh, and Father, we pray, Father, that you would just uh, help us to, to walk in repentance there by, by putting off self-reliance and to put on just a, a humble desire to be made right and to... Uh, and for you to, to usher and guide us in every step of our life, Father. We pray for revival in this church. Uh, God, we pray for revival uh, in our hearts, that you would awaken our hearts for your word, a passion and a zeal for your word, Father, which is clear to reveal the gospel. So by that, a passion and a zeal for the gospel. God, that we realize that the gospel is the power of God into salvation, but is also your power and, and what you use to, to help us to grow into maturity. Uh, so, Father, we, we pray that you would just help us to believe, to trust, and rest in the gospel in a deep, abiding way. And, Father, out of that, I pray that joy and, and passion and zeal would, would flow from that. God, I pray that you would... Uh, continue to convict us of our lack of prayer and to press us into a, a, a desperate need to, to take our prayers and petitions before you as a church family. As we think about uh, vision and purpose and disciple making and all those kind of things, we, we realize our real need for you. So, Father, help drive us to our knees in passionate prayer. God, because we know your scriptures teach that you work through the prayers of your people. And so if we don't pray, we realize that we are in just an empty place. And so we need your help. God, I pray that, that you would give us a passion and a zeal for evangelism and disciple making. To take this good news that you've given us. 
the good news of Jesus Christ uh, to the ends of the earth, but also to our next-door neighbors and our family members. Father, help us to be intentional with, with meals and, 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 and carpooling and whatever that may be, Father, whatever opportunities we may have. Father, help us to be intentional, to be passionate about proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world, Father. We pray for, out of this, God, you would give us a desire and a passion for community. After a year and a half of isolating ourselves um, and rejecting the creation order even, um, that we're, it's not meant for us to be alone, but to live in community. God, I pray that you would press in, that you would help guard us from fear of coronavirus or, or, or just the unknown, Father. Uh, give us a trust, a deep abiding trust in you and your word that you, nothing happens outside of your sovereign will. So Father, help us uh, gain that confidence so we can press in in community so that I can pour into others and others can pour into me and, and we can do the one another's of scripture. Um, God, we also just pray, Father, um, that in this, God, we pray that you would help us to be serious about disciple making. We need your help. We can't do it alone. And we are dependent upon you. So, Father, revive us today. Revive us as we move forward. And Lord, we ask all that in Christ's name. Amen. Every 
Thank you, Britt. Thank you, Pastor Chris and worship team. Yeah, go ahead and have a seat, church family. So good to see you today. It was a bit of a rough night, huh, with the weather. Uh, we had uh, some pretty severe thunderstorms. Hopefully nobody in the church sustained any uh, damage. Hope that's the case, uh, but uh, I'm glad that you're here with us this morning. We're, we're taking a break from our series in Acts to, uh, to get our minds thinking about the passion of the Christ uh, the word passion is a Latin word that just means to suffer, and so we're going to, uh, this morning, we're going to be looking at Palm Sunday. I thought with last year, you know, because we were, we were kind of ambushed by COVID, and then as leaders had to make some, uh, some decisions immediately, we really, it was almost like, and maybe I'm the only one who feels this way, but it was almost like Easter, we just kind of snuck by us, and we didn't give it uh, the, uh, the adequate attention. So I thought this year what we would do is uh, focus this morning on Palm Sunday, uh, and then, of course, on Friday, we're going to have Good Friday service at 6.30. We'll uh, partake in communion there. And then on uh, next Sunday, three services for Easter at 7.30, 9, and 10.45. And let me just ask you a favor. If, if some of you would consider going to the 7.30 service, uh, 
I know it's a lot earlier than it is now, but um, we really don't know what to expect. We do know that, that several families have either indicated that they're going to be returning for the first time on Easter, uh, and we also see families who have returned this week and last week for the first time. And so we don't think we're going to have three full services by any stretch, but we don't want to put anyone in a situation where we can't maintain adequate spacing. So if you would consider that, and if you're not a morning person, I, I get it. Don't, you don't have to do that. I'm just saying if you would consider coming at 7 o'clock, or 7.30 rather, um, we believe that it'll, it'll help to maintain uh, the sort of spacing that would be appropriate and I think also encouraging. If, you're, if you've been away for a year and a month and you know, the first time you come back, you have people sitting on either side of you, it might be a little disconcerting. So if you'll just think about that, uh, I would appreciate it. And of course, make plans uh, on Friday night for our Good Friday service. But let's pray and we will uh, continue to worship by responding to God's Word. Father, what a sweet and encouraging word it is by song to remember that even if we worked our fingers to the bone and we labored day and night, we could never really satisfy the law's demands because the law demands perfection. And who among us would say, yeah, I've reached that. And yet, even though we can't say we've attained perfection, there was one who was perfect in every way. And because of his life, death, and resurrection, because of the work of Jesus, his active obedience in satisfying all the Lord's demands, his passive obedience in dying in our place, dying uh, obedient even unto death, we know that we can be right with you because of the person and work of the Rock of Ages. And Father, I pray this morning as we consider Palm Sunday and the events that transpired thereon that you would uh, just increase our joy in you, deepen our faith in you, Give us a greater love for you and love for neighbor and, and a greater confidence in the gospel and who Christ is. And I pray that you would just conform us, Lord, mold us and shape us and chip off those rough edges and soften hard hearts and just mold us into the image of your beloved Son. For it is in Christ's name we pray. Amen. We're going to be in Mark 11 this morning. If you, if you have a Bible, if you don't have a Bible, we would love uh, to give you one. Again, we're taking a break from our series in Acts. And this is the time of year, and really next week is the, the week, when more people will be thinking about Jesus than perhaps any other day of the year, even if He's not really on the forefront of their minds. And what I mean by that is, of course, for many, Easter is about... Easter egg hunts and the bunny and, and chocolates and baskets and all of those things. And of course, there's nothing wrong with some of those things. Um, but for those who are thinking that way, even those who may get caught up in that, they probably, especially in our part of the country, they probably still remember going to church on Easter Sunday with their family, uh, maybe having lunch with the family afterward, maybe, maybe getting a new suit or a new dress for Easter Sunday. And so they have those memories that will help them to understand and realize that this is about more than just bunnies, baskets, and bonnets. This is really about, the day is really about something that happened in history, a real historical person. And if those who may think about Jesus on occasion would, would take the time to consider him uh, responsibly or maybe in a little more depth, they would realize that one of the things that makes Jesus most believable and, and indeed most captivating 
is the fact that he was unlike any hero that anybody could have ever made up. Uh, Scott Peck was a philosopher and author, uh, a writer, and he was a one-time atheist who really wrestled with, of course, as atheists do, his belief in God, whether he believed in God or not. And he said that his skepticism, he approached the Bible with a degree of skepticism, but he says the one thing that really got his attention, that God used to, to really get a hold of his heart, was just how different Jesus was than he had ever imagined or believed him to be. Here's what Peck writes. He says, I was absolutely thunderstruck by the extraordinary reality of the man I found in the Gospels. I discovered a man whose frustration leaps out on virtually every page. What do I have to say to you? How many times do I have to say it? What do I have to do to get through to you? I also discovered a man who was frequently sad, a man who was lonely, discovered a man so incredibly real that no one could have made him up. It occurred to me that if the gospel writers had uh, been into PR and embellishment, as I'd assumed, they would have created the kind of Jesus that three-quarters of Christians still seem to be trying to create, portrayed with a sweet, unending smile on his face, patting little children on the head, just strolling the earth with this unshakable equanimity. But the Jesus of the Gospels who some would suggest is the best-kept secret of Christianity, does not fit that description. So Jesus is, we read the Gospels, and we, we, we approach the Gospels often with these presuppositions of how we believe Jesus is or should be. And then we find Jesus who just totally is absolutely different than anything we would have imagined. And it's his unpredictability, the fact that he's not like any hero that could have ever been made up, that actually makes him more captivating than anyone. And, and this unpredictability is on full display in the triumphal entry. So, so this is the day of the year on the church calendar known as Palm Sunday. It's the beginning of uh, what's referred to as Holy Week, um, which represents the final week of Jesus' life on earth uh, before his crucifixion. And before we get to Palm Sunday, let me just let me zoom out a little bit and show you how this whole week will tran uh, transpire. So on Sunday, Jesus would make his way, the triumphal entry, into Jerusalem. Later that same day, he would return to Bethany where he would spend the night in prayer. Uh, on Monday, uh, Jesus curses the fig tree, uh, kind of confounding his disciples. They don't know why he would do such a thing. He also cleanses the temple. You may remember him going into the temple and turning over the tables and inciting the ire of the religious leaders. On Tuesday, Jesus and his disciples would come across that same fig tree that Jesus cursed only a day before. On Tuesday, he delivers the Olivet Discourse, which is Jesus' sermon on, on the end times and uh, what things will be like and how Christians ought to live with expectancy. His authority is a question, a question again by the religious leaders. Then on Wednesday was pretty much a silent day. Uh, we do know that, that this is the day most likely when Judas uh, would strike a deal to betray Jesus. Then on Thursday, preparations are made for the Passover meal. Jesus uh, would enjoy the Last Supper with his disciples he would wash his disciples' feet. Judas would be identified as the betrayer. And then later that same night, um, or actually it was early in the morning on Friday, but Peter would deny Jesus three times. And then on Friday, of course, we call it Good Friday because it, what it resulted in, uh, Jesus would go before Pilate. He would be condemned by the Jewish leaders. He would be beaten, mocked, and crucified. Uh, this is the day on which Judas would hang himself. And then Jesus, of course, would be buried before sunset. And Saturday, Pilate would place guards around the tomb. 
And then on Sunday, again, the single greatest day in all of history, not Christian history, but all of history, Jesus would rise from the dead, angels would appear at the tomb, and then Jesus would then uh, make himself known to his disciples. But going back to Sunday, Palm Sunday, um, the triumphal entry, this is really a story about the kingship of Jesus, Jesus actually announcing himself as the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, but bracketed, in, bracketed off are actually two responses, very different responses by those who would claim to be his followers. So we're going to look at, of course, Jesus' demonstration, but I also want to look at those two different responses. And the first type of response uh, we see in these two disciples. So we're going to cover verses 1 through 11, but let me start by reading uh, Mark 11, 1 through 6. Here reads the word of the Lord. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said and they let them go. So Mark tells us that Jesus sent two of his disciples whom he doesn't specify to a village that he doesn't clarify to find a guy that he doesn't identify to locate an unridden colt that they never have a chance to verify for a purpose that Jesus doesn't justify. So you see there are all kinds of things left unsaid here. And if you, by the way, if you're an aspiring rapper, uh, you feel free to use those rhymes. Um, but New Testament scholar I. Howard Marshall says, this is the quintessential faith mission. This is the mission where there's just there's nothing, there's hardly anything given, but his disciples are expected to respond in obedience. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, like, I, I need a little more details, please. I need a little bit more information. I led a team to Sydney, Australia some 15 years ago. I was speaking uh, there on, in Sydney. And on the days that I, I didn't speak, we did, we, the group that I led, uh, we held a, a holiday club for a new church plant in Sydney, Australia. And God just put together in His providence the, the, great, the most beautiful team, and we just worked together so well and enjoyed each other. And, and God was able, I mean, God allowed us to, to experience some fruit and see what He was doing there. But there was one lady, and she just was constantly bombarding me with questions. This is before the trip. She wanted to know everything. She wanted to know where we would stay on this night and this night, who would be driving, and when would we have our coffee breaks, and how strong would the internet be, and what are we going to be doing on this day? What are we going to be doing when you're not around? And all these things, one question after another. And finally, I had to say, look, you're, you're going to have to live with some flexibility and some uncertainty here. I don't know the answer to all of these questions. And to be honest with you, I was a little frustrated by it. It was a little annoying to me. Um, but then when I would get frustrated, I realized that I would be the exact same way if I weren't the one leading the trip. I want to know all the details, and I want to know how things are going to work and who's going to do whatever it is. Well, the disciples here, they're told very, very little, but they immediately head out and do exactly as Jesus has instructed, and only later would this make sense to them. Now, I talked about those two responses. Here's what I want you to see. This is our first point this morning. Belief precedes and enables 
understanding. Belief precedes and enables understanding. I know for some of you, and I'm the same way, uh, before we make any major commitment, we want to we want to do the T-sheet, the pros and cons, and, and look at all the variables and all the potentialities, and, and we want to just you know go ahead and go down the, that road in our mind and everything that could possibly happen. We want to make sure that we've resolved every tension. But this is not the way it works in the Christian life. This is not the way it works as those who are followers of Christ. There's so much we'll actually never understand until we believe, and then even after we believe, there's still much that will remain in the realm of, risk, of mystery. Now, now, the Christian faith is a reasonable faith. We're not fideus, which is a, a Latin word that just means those who believe against reason, those who believe against rationality. So, so we're not fideus. We have a very reasonable faith. So we're going to see next week the resurrection, the, the central event of the Christian faith, um, the, the, the event that forever altered the course of history was confirmed by 500 plus people who witnessed the resurrected Jesus. Some of those people then actually wrote about what they saw and what they wrote was affirmed by other people who saw the same things. And then some of those writings then, of course, were, were validated over the years and recognized as the Holy Scriptures to be shared generation to generation. So we have the resurrection, the real historical fact which means we have a reasonable faith, faith. And then if we zoom out and just look at creation itself, we see that all of creation screams a creator. The way that the world works, the design of the universe is so complex and so, so glorious, so organically interrelated that it must have a designer. So we don't believe against rationality. But there's so much that we actually can't really understand unless we humble ourselves and believe. And to the contrary, if we don't believe, we'll always find ways to explain away what God is doing. The great Russian novelist uh, Fyodor Dostoevsky uh, once said that the skeptic will always find a way to disbelieve even if the, the facts in front of him are irrefutable. And so, you know, this works the same way in our own lives. Something happens, and immediately we think, well, that, that was a real God thing. Like, that had to be the Lord. But then before we even get to the point of praising Him or thanking Him, we start to go down that road of, well, I mean, but there have to be other more natural reasons for this. I mean, there are other things that could explain this. The skeptic, the one who doesn't believe, will always find a way to reject even the clear moving of God. Once our cynicism creeps in and we start to think about all the other ways and reasons that can easily happen. Those who refuse to believe are unable to see what God is doing, but those who believe are able to see what God is doing and really who God is. Now, isn't this exactly what Peter says? And remember, Jesus preaches this, what I guess you might say is most controversial sermon, or at least one of them. It's the bread of life sermon. And Jesus has all these people around, and they're crowded, they're crowded up against him. They're listening to every word he's saying. And then he says something about, you know, you're eating my flesh. I'm like, wait a second. And then he says, you know, but you have to consume my blood. You have to, you have to eat my flesh and, and take me in and so on. And they're like, wait a second. Now that, that, that's like, I can't handle that. That's too much, Jesus. So there's some murmuring that takes place, and then they all leave. Almost everybody leaves except the disciples. And Jesus turns to Peter and says, well, are you going to leave me too? And Peter says in John 6, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And then look at the next phrase. 
And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter's understanding is actually enabled by his belief. Commenting on this, the 4th century African Bishop Augustine writes, He does not say we have understood and then we believed, but we have believed and then we understood. We have believed in order to be able to understand. Now, what does this mean for us this morning? Well, I think for some of us, it may mean we need to stop focusing so much energy on trying to figure out the things that are beyond us, trying to figure out the secret things, so to speak, and actually trust in what God has revealed, that God is good, that He is infinitely wise, that He is for us in Christ, that He has given us everything we need in Jesus, that He will restore this broken and sin-cursed world. And for those areas that we do struggle to believe, I think we say honestly and openly before God without trying to sugarcoat it. We say, even like the, the Father said in Mark 9, we say, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Now let's look at how Jesus reveals himself in verses 7 through 10. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that had cut, they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. So it's Passover season in, in Israel, in Jerusalem, when all law-abiding law Jews were required to, uh, to remain within the city limits for the time of the festival. And so it's already a time when there are a lot of people around. And there are just thousands of people. And the Passover was a time when the people of Israel would, of course, remember uh, God's miraculous work in delivering them from the enslavement to the Egyptians. He did so in a powerful way with His right hand, uh, in a way accompanied by force and miracles and splendor. And by this time, Jesus, again, He had garnered a pretty big following. There was a huge following. Just about everywhere He went, He was recognized. In fact, people seemed to be ready at this point to crown Him as the King who would deliver them from Israel, the one who would overthrow the Roman government, who would restore Israel and, and rescue them from the tyranny of Rome. And so they're ready to actually coronate him as king. But then he comes in to Jerusalem in, in a way that was very unkingly, in a way that was anything but regal. He comes in riding on a baby donkey. Now, this would have been a very jarring sight. Uh, this wasn't a fitting way for a king to enter a city. In history, when a conquering king would enter a city, he would come in on a mighty war horse, a fearsome stallion, uh, brandishing weapons of victory. But here Jesus comes in empty-handed on the back of a little donkey. I mean, the whole, th the whole scene really is comical. Have you ever seen a grown man on, on one of these miniature ponies? I mean, it's a, it's a, it just doesn't seem right. Not that anybody would have expected this. Now, Jesus actually chose this animal for a reason, though. He's not stuck with the leftovers. He sent His disciples to get this exact animal. And what He's doing in a variety of ways is He is unequivocally identifying Himself as the Messiah. Starts by Him calling Himself Lord in verse 3. Tell them the Lord has need of it. But the most striking way is how He chooses to enter Jerusalem on a colt. Jesus 
intentionally enters Jerusalem in this way as a way to demonstrate his fulfillment, that he is the fulfillment of the prophetic word in Zechariah 9, where Zechariah says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humbled and mounted on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Uh, 2 Kings 9, we, we don't have really time to look at, but it also talks about the spreading of cloaks and branches to give way to the entrance of a king. And, and by the way, a colt that had never been ridden before, a, a quote, unbroken colt, uh, which is what Jesus sends his disciples after, was regarded as sort of exclusively qualified prophetically to carry in Israel's king. We see this in Numbers 19. We see it in, in Deuteronomy 21. So Jesus displays his kingship. What he's doing here is he's saying to these people who knew the Old Testament scriptures well, they knew what we, the Bible. That's, that's all they had is the Bible then. They knew the Bible and they knew that the one who was coming, they knew that the one who was spoken of in the prophets was the one who would restore Israel. But none of this looks right to them. Again, he's not coming in in a kingly way. And so these are, these are people to whom Jesus wants to make it clear that he's the one the prophets spoke about. He's the one the whole Bible is about. He is the suffering servant who would come and lay down his life and suffer and be beaten and bruised to take the punishment of his people so that you and I and everyone who would believe could be forgiven of all our sins and be reconciled to God and one another. So this seemingly bizarre decision by Jesus, again, to, to enter Jerusalem on a, on a colt, is all calculated, one, to reveal his messianic identity, but two, there's another reason behind this. The second reason is to force people to decide, is this really the one we've been waiting for? We haven't spent a lot of time, well, any time really in Mark's gospel. Uh, we're kind of parachuting into this section on Palm Sunday. We've been in Acts, as you know, but if we were to look at Mark's gospel, we would see that, that one of the things that Jesus regularly does is contrast those who get it and those who don't get it, those who are proud and stubborn and those who are humble. And about those who don't get it, he says to them, they have eyes, but they can't see. They have ears, but, but they can't hear. They're always learning, but they're never believing. And here he would further uh, develop that contrast by entering into Jerusalem on an unbroken colt. This is a way to further separate those who would believe and those who won't. He is, in essence, forcing all people to draw a hard conclusion about him. This is our second point this morning. Jesus never allows for indifference concerning him. By his words and actions, he forces people to receive or reject him. Now, it was C.S. Lewis who sort of, you know, I guess, gained the most popularity for this, this, this idea that you can't just like Jesus. He's either a lord, liar, or lunatic. But actually, there was a Scottish preacher before him by the name of John Duncan who, who was also, you know, one to preach this idea. And then after C.S. Lewis, folks like Tim Keller and Philip Yancey and others. But the, the point that they make is if someone makes the claims that he makes, the sort of claims that Jesus makes, you can't just sort of like him. You can't just uh, sort of be indifferent to him. You either have to fully reject him as a guy who is a lunatic, a guy who's lost his mind, or receive him as he has revealed himself to be. I mean, think about what Jesus himself claims. He claims to be one with the Father. 
He claims to be the one who was there at creation, who put the stars in place, the one who, who spoke the word and, and made the world. He claims to be the one before whom every single person will bow down. You can't simply like somebody who makes those sorts of claims. Again, you either have to reject that person in totality or you have to take him as who he says he is. And I think what a lot of people do, and I understand it, but what a lot of people do is they, they want to live in the middle. You know, they like Jesus, they, they enjoy some of his teaching, they, they read some of his statements, and they think, oh, there's some real wisdom in that. My own father's like this, who has gone from kind of an atheist to now an agnostic, and he said, yeah, I, I read some of the stuff that Jesus says. And I mean, this guy was really good. I mean, he really knew how to motivate people and get, the, get to the heart of people. And so what a lot of people do is they live in the middle. They want to take some of what Jesus teaches, and, and they want to discard others. They want, to, they want to take some of what he does, but then ignore the rest of it. But I think this actually is the worst possible response. Because why would, we, why would anyone want to do this? I mean, why would anyone want to receive some of what a guy says who claims to be one with God? Why would, why would anybody want to take some of what a guy says who also at one point says, if you don't love me more than your own parents or your own children, you're not worthy of me? As a pastor, I, I often see parents of adult children who their children have left the church and they want nothing to do with the church, nothing to do with spiritual things, and, and naturally they agonize over the spiritual state of their children. And they wonder, is my child really a Christian? Is my son or daughter really a Christian? And, and of course they're going to agonize over this. You know, as a Christian parent, what we want more than anything else in, in all of life is for our kids to, to turn to faith in Jesus, to walk with the Lord in Christ. And, and my heart breaks for parents when I see them wrestling over maybe a past decision or a past prayer that their kids prayed when now, again, there's no interest in spiritual things. There's no involvement in the believing community. There's no desire to glorify God with their lives. And, and so they, they look back on those decisions. They look back on those prayers and they say, I don't know. I mean, w was that real? Was what happened really real? And I think a couple things parents can do in this regard. The most important things, I think, are one, praying for our kids and praying for their salvation, praying that God would draw them to himself, which is something I constantly pray for my own kids, that God would deepen their faith and increase their joy in Him and deepen their love for Him. And I think another thing is, is certainly to show unconditional love so that our kids know we don't just love them if they act a certain way or say a certain thing. But I wonder if there's ever a time, in fact, I, I'm, I'm fairly persuaded there is, if there's ever a time to to ask questions that may expose the, the lack of intellectual integrity with someone who says, who professes Christ, but doesn't obey Him nor worship Him. I wonder if there's a time, and I, and I think there is, to ask those adult children, those people, but how do you say you're a follower of Christ and then reconcile that with what Jesus says here? How do you say that you, you, you're a Christian and reconcile that with what Jesus says here, where he says he has no interest in followers who don't follow. And those who are his truly, truly his disciples demonstrate that by their obedience and by their love and by their worship. So how do you reconcile those things? A man who says what Jesus says, again, we have to completely disregard him or we have to completely center our lives around him. 
obeying him and treasuring him and worshiping him and crying out to him, Lord, save us, please. And this is exactly how the crowd responds initially. Look at verses 9 and 10 again. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. Mark says that those who went before and those who followed are shouting out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, just a transliteration of Hebrew word, just means, Lord, save us, please. Please save us. From every direction, in stereo sound, as it were, Jesus is being praised and hailed as the king. The scene is crazy. It's bedlam. It's people, again, it's like a controlled mob. It's people who are shouting. People are throwing their clothes down, laying leafy branches down, paving the way for Jesus, and singing out to him, Hosanna, or Lord, save us. It's like uh, going to Hobby Lobby on, on Black, Friday, Black Friday. You know, it's like people are everywhere and people are, you know, you got trinkets everywhere and ribbons and everything. Every this is the way it was at first. The scene is crazy. There's an electricity in the air. And then look at verse 11. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Now, wait, we were going to say, wait a second. Like, what happened here? What happened to all the celebration? All this singing and shouting and worshiping, and what does it lead to? Nothing. The crowd just totally disappears. Now, this is deaf storytelling by Mark the Evangelist here. We go from loud praises and what some might consider over the top worship, and then, rather matter of factly, Mark says, and then it got late, and Jesus and the twelve were alone again, and they looked around, they went to Bethany. Kind of yawn, like, that, that, that's all there is? New Testament commentator James Edwards writes, Mark's account is noteworthy for what does not happen. The whole scene comes to nothing, like the seed in the parable of the sower that receives the word with joy but has no root and lasts but a short time. The crowd disperses as mysteriously as it assembles. Again, it's what doesn't happen that Mark is drawing our attention to. The crowds, they're gone. The celebration, it is abruptly over. Mark does not want us to miss that. Remember I said there are two responses. The first one be, being this believing that leads to understanding. Here's the second point, the second response, or third point this morning rather. Enthusiasm doesn't equal faith. Neither does emotion always reveal genuine devotion. All these demonstrations, Jesus makes it clear, He is the fulfillment of the prophetic word. He is the long-awaited Messiah. And though He may not deliver Israel in the way they anticipate, He has come to restore and to redeem His people. And all that celebration leads to nothing. Just as quickly as the crowd gathers, they disappear. See, being temporarily on fire for Jesus doesn't necessarily equate to saving faith. Even being momentarily overwhelmed with worship doesn't always reveal a regenerate heart. There are a lot of Christians who go from one incredible high to another, one mountaintop experience, and then they crash down into the valley, and their lives are characterized by moments of just 
unbelievable feeling and emotions and they feel close to God and then they crash into the valley and they don't cry out to God. Their belief is shattered. Their faith is wrecked. Their walk is absolutely derailed. When the, the emotions run dry, like emotions always do, they don't even know how to function. When they cascade from the mountaintop because of some un unexpected tragedy or difficult season, they're done. They left the worship service on Sunday just on top of the world. But when the day-to-day -day life hit them, they careened into a deep pit. Things were going so well for them, and they attributed their success to Jesus, and things were great at work, and things were great at home, and, and so they gave Jesus all the credit. They thought it had to be something to do with their faith, and, and then things go really bad. They get a diagnosis, or something happens in their marriage or the family, and they absolutely are wrecked, and they turn their back on the faith. They read a devotional they came across, and it promised great things for them, but those things never materialized, and so they abandon their faith. They had a struggle in which they felt the presence of God in a profound way, but now they don't feel it anymore. And until they get that feeling back, they have no interest in pursuing God. A theologian and author, Kevin DeYoung, says, Many of us are attracted to a Tasmanian devil kind of Christianity, splattering, spinning around. You get fired up, praise God for that, and then you spin out like the Tasmanian devil, ready to conquer the world for Christ, and then you blow up into a tree somewhere. This is the way it is for some Christians where it's all about emotion. And don't get me wrong, the Christian life should be emotional. When we think about what God has done for us, it should stir our affections. It should lead us to emotional worship, but not just emotional. It should be intellectual. It should be cerebral. It should be all of those things. And so the antidote for this kind of thinking, this sort of uh, Tasmanian devil kind of Christianity, is this realization our standing with God is not based on our emotion. In fact, the entire Christian faith is not based on emotion, but is anchored in real, a real historical fact, the resurrection, and a real historical person, Jesus of Nazareth, and what God has done for us through that person in Christ. And this is where it's critical to distinguish between the peace of God and peace with God. There is for the Christian, the peace of God, which is this subjective, supernatural uh, belief or, or assurance that, that God is with us and He's working things out and we just feel it. It's a sense of relief. That's the peace of God. But I think we all have to admit, we don't always have the peace of God. I don't. Sometimes we do and sometimes we feel it and sometimes we just feel totally at rest. But there are other times when we don't feel at rest. There are times when we feel anxious. There are other times when we don't really know what's going to happen in the future and we don't feel confident. Well, for the Christian, there is the peace of God, which we praise God for, which is that subjective, supernatural relief. But there's also, because of the finished work of Christ, we also have peace with God, which is actually something different. The Apostle Paul says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God, through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we're not born at peace with God. We're actually born at odds with God. We're born under God's wrath, objects of His wrath, which is right because we have disobeyed Him, we have rebelled Him, we have sinned against Him, and we have fallen for other loves. So we're not born at peace with God. We're born at odds with God. 
But the cause of that divine hostility, namely the guilt of our sin, has been washed away in the wounds of Christ at the cross. The wrath of God, which, which we actually rightly deserve because of our sin, is satisfied on the cross for all who believe. But you know how it normally works. I mean, I'm certainly a victim of this myself. When we don't feel at peace, we just assume there is no peace. Uh, when we don't feel that God is close to us, we assume that He has left us, that He's off in the distance, that He's uncaring. But this is actually not true at all. To conclude that is to put our trust in something in ourselves, on some feeling or some spiritual connection, rather than in the person of Christ. Our only trust is in Jesus and His cross work, which means the reality is God is always close to those who have trusted in Christ. In fact, He actually lives within us in His Spirit, by His Spirit. The reality is that God is always for us in Christ. He won't allow anything to come between us, to serve as a barrier between us and Himself, even our own sin. Jesus has obliterated every barrier. So if you're feeling like, maybe you're feeling this morning, or maybe you felt over the past week or, or month, or maybe this whole year with COVID, it's just been characterized by a great sense of unrest. You don't feel like things are right. You don't even feel like things are right with God. Maybe you're even wondering, I don't know, am I, am I really a Christian? I mean, I come to church, but am I really a Christian? Well, don't look to your feelings. Don't look to your current emotional state. Ask yourself, what am I really trusting in for salvation? What am I really putting my trust in? Is it Jesus Christ who died on the cross for my sins? Not just for the sins of the world, for my sins, for my rebellion. What am I putting my faith in? If it's Jesus Christ, His life, His death, His resurrection, then you belong to God and He belongs to you. And you have nothing this morning to fear, even though your feelings may indicate otherwise. You have nothing to fear. Your debt has been paid. Your sins in total have been forgiven. You are loved and cherished by God. In fact, all of the riches in Christ are yours by faith. You can come before God this morning, even if you've had a terrible morning, Maybe you had a bad morning with your kids or a bad morning with your spouse or, or you just weren't feeling it when you came. You can come to God before the throne of God with confidence, with boldness, with faith, with, with humility, knowing that there stands Christ who has perfectly lived for you, who died for you, who has satisfied and absorbed the wrath of God that was intended for you and me. Christ, who is your perfect plea and who is your only righteousness. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we consider the triumphal entrance, help us to remember that everything that is spoken of in the Old Testament and all the, the, the sacrificial system, system and the temple and all of these things actually find their complete and final fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And so we don't need to come to you through a man. We don't need to come to you through ritual. We don't need to clean ourselves up and make sure that 
everything is right before we come to you. We come to you with boldness and with faith and with confidence because of the person of Jesus Christ who is our mediator. And we thank you that when we come before the throne of God above, we do have a perfect plea. And it's not, God, I did these things when I was young, or I prayed this prayer, or I've been a really good person lately. All of those pleas will be woefully insufficient. But we have a perfect plea, and we know it's this. Christ has lived for us. He has died in our place. He has satisfied your wrath on the tree. He is our substitute. He is our Savior. He is our King. And so we come to you this morning with great joy, singing together the hope that we have in Christ. Help us to believe it as we sing. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hand. My name is written on his heart. spotless righteousness the great unchangeable I am the king of glory and of grace because the sinless Savior died my sinful soul is counted free for God the just is satisfied Look on him and pardon me, to look on him and pardon me, because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free, for God the just is satisfied, to look 
able to worship together. Uh, was walking in the service today and, and had a conversation with, uh, with Dan Burris as we were walking in, and we were just talking about how thankful we are to be together and, and, and to join together. And, and part of that is, is it's great to worship together. You guys may not be able, I hope you can out there, hear what it's like to hear your voices uplifted in the truth of a song that like we just sang. And, and oftentimes we say as we move to this time where we, we're just reminded of giving, that our giving is an act of worship. I just want to give you two quick reminders on that of how that works. First of all, as we unite together as a body of believers, I want you to know that your giving is a way that the gospel of Jesus Christ is shed abroad locally, nationally, internationally, that those who have never heard the name of Jesus Christ, who have never trusted in him as the Lord and Savior, would become worshipers of the one true God. And that is an act of how our giving is a part of that. If you're not familiar with our giving, I, I'd point you to our, our website. You can look at our outreach tab there. and You can see where we're giving locally and nationally and internationally and see where our partners are and be praying about that, but also be committing to worship God through giving. The other thing is, I, as I'm so convicted by what Pastor John just asked us toward the end of the service is, on what do we trust? Stamped on our tender, it says, we trust in God. But in so much practice, we trust in that dollar. We trust in the things that we've been given and the resources that we're going to have for our security and, and th the way things will go well in our life is putting that trust in there. And when we're willing to acknowledge him, that he is the one who is our strength, he is the source and the one, the only one in whom we can trust, we worship him with our giving. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I just ask God today that you would Convict our hearts, God, of where we are trusting in that which deserves no trust. God, that, that which is a counterfeit God that steals your true worship. God, I pray that you'd inspire our hearts and God, re reignite in us a desire to be a part of your work through giving. God, I pray that you would use our resources, God, to see the gospel shed abroad, to shed locally here. That, God, this may be a body united to create worshipers of you. In your name we pray. Amen. Before I do forget, there are many ways to, to give here at Capshaw. Um, uh, probably the, the easiest way is to go to our website. There's a tab that you can give or tap capshaw.org.give. And uh, it's very simple to, to go through that process. If you're here today and want to give uh, after service, there's, there's that way too. So there's many ways to do that and just want want to say how thankful I am to be a part of that worship with you. Uh, just by way of benediction, I want to close with the, the beautiful words of Ephesians chapter 3, verses 17 through 19. As Paul would say this, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints, listen to this, the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all fullness of God. You're dismissed.